Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world who are joining us tonight. If you are visiting us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. So let me go ahead and welcome some of you guys. Of course, we have our moderators. Khaleesi is with us. Uh, Dead Talk Live, who is Saz, is moderating. Welcome, Saz. Welcome, CC Weezy. Welcome, Navith on Facebook. On Instagram, I saw Lady Viz is joining us. I want to welcome my wife, who is tuning into the show tonight. Andonis is with, is with us. Villainous, welcome to all you guys. Mary Martins42 is also with us on Instagram. So just a little note, tomorrow is that Walking Dead holiday special. It's not going to be live, guys. It's just going to premiere sometime in the early morning hours on AMC+. And it will be available anytime you want to watch it after that. Uh, it is pre-recorded. It's a one-hour-long holiday special. Uh, they released a little bit more information on what to expect. Uh, there's going to be performances by Emily Kinney, who of course played Beth on The Walking Dead. That's always a treat. She's going to be uh, performing um, Up on the Housetop, and then a parody of 12 Days of Christmas by uh, Carrie, Carrie Payton, Andrews, uh, Eleanor Matsura, and Cassidy McClincy. That ought to be interesting. As an additional stocking stuffer, the special will debut an exclusive new table read from the video, uh, the, the episode called Diverged. So that's something to look forward to, giving fans a sneak peek from one of the six new episodes that are appearing between season 10 and season 11, of course premiering on February 28th of 2021. Now, for those of you who have AMC+, Plus, you're all set. If you don't have AMC+, Plus, they do offer one-week free trials. My best advice is if you want to sign up for that one-week free trial is to use uh, uh, Amazon Prime Video. You can actually sign up through a for AMC+, Plus through Amazon Prime Video. Uh, get your one-week trial. If you like it, continue it. If not, you can cancel at any time. So that's some more information. It is being dropped sometime after midnight tonight. Who knows when? Probably in the early, early, early morning hours of tomorrow morning. So next on the agenda is villains who thought they were doing the right thing. Now, you know, you can put everybody in that class. I mean, what villain does what they do because they know it's the wrong thing? Not that many of them. People do what they do, whether it's right or wrong, because they think it's right. Anyway, first on the list is Shane. He never got the same amount of development in the comics as he did in the TV show, but Shane's goal in the end seemed the, the same. He wanted what was best for the group, Lori and Carl, more than anyone else. He went about this uh, extremely poorly, to put it mildly, mostly due to his obsession with Laurie and being her new lover. Replacing Rick, it caused him to blame Rick for everything after Rick came back, saying it would all have been better if he would have stayed dead. Ouch. Jealousy ended up being his downfall. We all know how that story goes. Welcome to Sammy on Facebook. So, the next person on the list is Chris. He wasn't necessarily an antagonist in the same way that a Negan or a governor was, but his actions firmly planned him there and rightfully brought the righteous fury of Tyrese on him. You guys remembering who Chris is now? Remember Terminus while Carol was out rescuing the people and Tyrese was left in the shed? That's who Chris was. Anyway... He, uh, he acted as the group's babysitter for a spell while secretly pressuring Julie into a suicide pact with him. While it was scummy and vile of him, he genuinely thought, genuinely thought it was for the best that it let the two of them get to live together forever. He ended up getting the death he wanted, just not in a painless fashion. Next on the list, and they're bringing up characters that a lot, lot, 
a lot of you are saying, who the hell is that? Next one is Lily Cowell. Lily was one of the many Woodbury residents who followed along with the governor without question, fearing what would happen if they ever spoke out against him. To her, she was just doing what she had to survive, never taking in how heinous the actions of the governors were until he ordered her to fire on Lori. She snapped after she found out Lori was carrying a baby, turning on Philip, and eventually leading directly to his death. Her story even got to continue in a spin-off novel series. Uh, then they actually put Gabriel on this list as uh, villains who thought they were doing the right thing. I just flat out called Gabriel in the early stages a coward, but do you want to call him a villain? All right. Gabriel never became a, tra a traditional antagonist due to his cowardly nature, but his actions alone warrant him being considered a villain. Despite everything he did to try to redeem himself, he sacrificed others to remain among the living, justifying it as a means of spreading the faith and bringing comfort to others. He always found himself to be more important than others until the latter half of the series when he's gutted by Beta. Oh, damn. All right. Negan. Okay, there's now Negan is somebody we cannot argue as being a villain. Uh wanna welcome Rivero on Instagram, Jose, Nicholas, sorry, Nicoletta is with us. Goka is also with us. Philip Thompson is with us on Facebook. Brian T is also joining us, as is Sammy. So Negan, a man as violent and unhinged as Negan rarely has reasoning for anything he does, mostly falling under the psychopath category like the governor. Now, I disagree with that, and I'm not going to go into it again. The governor was a true psychopath. Negan was not, is not a psychopath. Anyway, Negan was different, though. Everything he did, he genuinely felt it was for the best. All of his harsh, his harsh actions kept others in line, thus lessened the infighting that he had to deal with. He even had a code of honor that he strictly lived by. Unfortunately, he lacked an understanding of emotions any longer. He lost touch. He lost touch, and he really thought, as he explained to Alpha, that his shit didn't stink anymore, leading to his many horrific actions. Last on the list is Dwight. As with Negan, there were many layers to Dwight's personality that slowly got unraveled as the story carried on. He went from Negan's right-hand man to Rick's, showing what a trusted lieutenant he could be. If you guys haven't figured this out yet, they're, they're mirroring both the comic books and the TV show. What they're talking about Dwight is in direct relationship to what happened to Dwight's character in the comic books. The biggest trait of his personality is his strong sense of justice that forms beneath both leaders. It helps steer many of his actions, such as welcoming the burning of his face at the hands of Negan and willingly letting Sherry go. It also directly led to his death as he felt he needed to free the citizens of the Commonwealth from oppression. If you guys don't know the story in the comic books, of course, there is no fear of the walking dead. Dwight stayed and became a trusted member of Rick's militia. You could say he's right-hand man because Daryl does not exist in the comic books. And he did not like how people were living under the Commonwealth. Uh, basically, it was a, a system of how important you were before the apocalypse. So he didn't like it. He wanted to start a revolution. And Rick felt in order to keep the peace with the Commonwealth, he did kill Dwight. So Rick also accidentally killed Sherry in the comic books as well, which led to Dwight and uh, Rick not getting along that well after that. 
So you could tell where the stories really, really diverged from the comic book series to the TV series. Anyway, guys, it's that time of the year again where we get to see the, the list of the best horror movies that were released in the year 2020. The year 2020, well, basically it sucked. <laughs> There's no other better way to put it. Uh, so let's go over the list of some of the best horror movies that were released during the last 12 months. We only have two weeks left to go in the year, and there are not that many. There, I don't think there are any new horror movies being released in the next two weeks. So let's go ahead and take a look at this list. All right. Now, I got to admit, I have not seen the majority of these. First on the list is a movie called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And if you guys have seen any of these, please chime in, okay? We all have been in desperate need of fun horror movies this year, and that's part of why The Wolf of Snow Hollow worked so well for me. The film is written and directed by Jim Cunnings, known for Thunder Road, which is also fantastic, and who also stars in the film. As a small-town sheriff's deputy who is trying to track down a cold-blooded killer. The late, great Robert Forster stars as Cummings' father and the sheriff of the town, where a werewolf may or may not be responsible for the killings. There are some truly great creature effects in this film, and you can read the entire interview that they did with director Jim Cunnings. Next, Relic. I have seen this movie. This is a good movie. When Kay's mother, Edna, goes missing and her daughter, Sam, travel to Edna's house and discover something sinister has taken over Edna's mind and her home, the movie hit me in a very personal way and stayed with me for days. The way Relic expertly portrays the horrifying, heartbreaking effects of Alzheimer's disease and dementia on patients and families is brilliant. The movie is terrifying and intense while also being just beautifully sad. It's available on Vudu, Prime, and Google Play. Next is After Midnight. Haven't seen this one. This film uh, made the top 10 horror movie list of 2019 because I covered it when it was played in the Tribeca Film Festival in 2019 but it was officially released in 2020 uh it was under its original title back then which was which was something else and that's what the title was something else but it was released in february 2020 it's on my list this year too because i loved it so much written by jeremy gardner and directed by gardner and christian stella the team who gave us the awesome zombie film, The Battery, After Midnight is a genius combination of a monster movie and a love story. The film stars Jeremy Gardner and Brie Grant as, Hack and, as Hank and Abby, a couple that has had a roller coaster relationship. Gardner has a gift of writing incredibly authentic stories about relationships, that is what drives After Midnight and makes it such a great film. I also really love the monster in this movie. You can read the interview with Jeremy Gardner. All right, next on the list is 12-Hour Shift. I haven't heard of this one. I haven't, I've never heard of this movie, guys. I'm very thankful for the horror comedies I've seen in 20, like 12-Hour Shift. That's probably why I haven't watched it. I'm not a big fan of horror comedies. I like a lot of them. You know, I'm a big Shaun of the Dead fan and all that other stuff. But as the most part, it's not going to appeal me to sit down and watch it. Anyway, uh, it was written and directed by Bree Grant. The film stars Angela Bettis as a drug-addicted nurse named Mandy who is involved in an organ harvesting scheme with her cousin Regina, hilariously portrayed by Chloe Farnsworth. When Regina loses the organs she was supposed to deliver to the buyer, she and Mandy end up in an outrageous quest for organs to steal. 
This film is bloody good time, and you could read the interview with director Bree Grant. All right, okay. Next on the list is The Stylist. I haven't heard of this one either. Based on the short film of the same name, The Stylist was written by Jill, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Gevarjian. I definitely butchered that. Eric Stoles and Eric Havens and directed by Gevarjian. The film stars Najara Townsend in a chilling performance as a lonely hairstylist named Claire who has murderous tendencies. The stylist gives nods to films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in ways that will really get under your skin, hence its appearance in the top 10 horror movies of 2020. The film also stars Brie Grant as a client of Claire, who hires her to do her hair for her wedding. With the devastating consequences, the stylist premiered at a Fantastic Fest 2020, and is scheduled to be released in 2021. Oh, so it's not even available for us to watch. Next, Synchronic. Sorry, Synchronic. Um, I've heard of this one. I haven't seen it, though. Filmmakers Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson are one of the dream teams of independent horror and have given us phenomenal films like Spring and The Endless, Written by Benson and directed by Moorhead and Benson, their latest film, Synchronic, takes us on another mind-bending journey. The film stars Anthony Mackie in a stellar performance and Jamie Dorman uh, as paramedics in New Orleans dealing with overdoses and disappearances related to street drug called Synchronic. Synchronic will be released on digital platforms on January 12th and will arrive on DVD on January 26th. Now this next movie, The Dark and the Wicked. We actually had the star, of one of the stars of this movie, as a guest on our show. And, that's because, and that is Michael Abbott Jr. He also appeared in the season 6 premiere of Fear the Walking Dead. He was Isaac. And Michael, I've seen this movie... It is absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Um, I It's on... Well, you can stream it. You're going to have to rent it or buy it. But it's available on every, you know, popular streaming platform. Not on Netflix. You got to... Like, it's on Amazon Prime, uh, Vudu, Fandango Now. You could rent it or buy it. It's a scary-ass movie. Again, it stars Michael Abbott Jr., so let's see what it says. The Dark and the Wicked was the scariest movie at Fantasia Film Festival this year. Written and directed by Brian Brian Bertino, who is known for The Strangers, the film slowly gets under your skin and leaves you breathless and terrified by the end. The Dark and the Wicked tells the story of a man named Michael, played by Michael Abbott Jr., and his sister Louise, played by Marin Ireland, who traveled to their parents' farm to help out their mother, who takes care of their sick father. They realize that a malevolent force has enveloped everything on the farm, including their mother. Watch this one in the dark, and I guarantee you, you will be looking over your shoulder for the next week. Uh... He goes on to say, you can check out my interview with star Michael Abbott Jr., where we discuss the dark and the wicked here. We've also had Michael Abbott Jr. on our show as well. This was before this movie came out. It's a crazy-ass scary movie. So you guys have to watch it. I mean, it's not that expensive. You could rent it for like four bucks, but you can buy it for like nine bucks on Amazon Prime video or anywhere else so i definitely recommend you guys check that out all right next on the list is freaky nope this came out recently i believe written by christopher landon and michael kennedy and directed by landon freaky is even more fun 
than Landon's previous horror comedy, Happy Death Day, and Happy Death Day to You, which I really loved, full of clever nods to horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street and Candyman, freaky stars Catherine Newton, uh, the society as a teenager named Millie, who is attacked by serial killer the Blissfield Butcher, played by Vince Vaughn. I'm sorry, I can't see Vince Vaughn as playing a serial killer. Uh, and ends up switching bodies with him. Millie has to figure out how to switch their bodies back in 24 hours, or she will be stuck in the body of the blissful, bl- uh, sorry, the Blissfield Butcher forever. This film features the best horror movie kills of 2020 and includes some insane practical effects. Freaky is the most fun I've had watching a horror movie this year. And you can read their interview with Catherine Newton. All right, The Invisible Man. This was a great movie. Uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of The Invisible Man. Not really a scare. If you go back to like the original, The Black and White, I wouldn't call it a horror movie. But they made this one really, it was scary. Written and directed by Lee Wannell, The Invisible Man stars... Elizabeth Moss uh, as Cecilia, a woman who finally escapes her abusive boyfriend only to have him stalk her. The worst part of being hunted down by her boyfriend is that he is invisible and can seemingly do whatever he wants, including killing people close to Cecilia. This extremely well-written thriller follows Cecilia as she fights to the death to get her life back. It's available on Prime, Hulu, and HBO Max. All right. I think we're coming close to the end here. Color Out of Space. Never heard of this. Based on the short story by H.P. Lovecraft, director Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space stars Nicolas Cage as Nathan Gardner, and Jolie Richardson as his wife, Teresa, whose family is affected by a meteorite landing in their yard. Cage gives a great performance, but the real star of the movie is Madeline Arthur, who plays the gardener's daughter, Lavinia. Featuring pink and purple lighting, kaleidoscopic cinematography, and gruesome practical effects, Color Out of Space shows the sorry shows the indescribable horrifying effects the meteorite has on the Gardner family. There is a scene with alpacas that is stuff of nightmares. The movie is the definition of the term Lovecraftian, available on Vudu and Google Play. Oh boy! All right, okay. Now I gotta admit. I have not seen the majority of those movies. I can't really vouch for them. I've seen Relic, but I got to go back and say it again. The uh, the Dark and the Wicked, that's a must-watch. Uh, if you guys are into paranormal horror movies like I am, it will really scare the crap out of you. So you got to watch it. Lindsay Sparks on Facebook writes, I saw this movie, Color Out of Space. Uh, Khaleesi writes, uh, Freaky was awesome. I love Vince Vaughn. He's funny. Uh, and it is a horror comedy, so I can see why he's in it. Philip Thompson writes, I love Candyman. Candyman was awesome. Tony Todd, who I got to meet a long, long time ago, played Candyman. And that was a great, great, great movie. Uh, Yoslin is with us on Instagram. Uh, OJK is giving us a smiley love face on Instagram. Welcome to all you guys who just joined us. Uh, let's see. Lindsay Sparks writes, was a weird movie, but a great movie. Uh, Singer Chick, are any of these available on Netflix? I need some way to watch them using the Rave app. I love scary movies, but I don't like watching them alone. I I think the relic might be on Netflix. 
you know, that's what I don't like uh, about how movies are distributed today. You either got to have like all subscribe to all the major streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video to really watch what you want to watch or you got to pay for each movie individually. So they got to figure that out. They got to figure out a better system with digital licensing rights to get these movies actually seen by more people. Okay, we've talked about it before, the movie theater, the way we used to go to the movies, will it come back, won't it come back, we don't know. Right now, it doesn't look very good for the movie theaters moving into 2021, so we, we are seeing these Hollywood studios make adjustments, releasing movies to limited amount of movie theaters and to streaming services simultaneously. There are more and more streaming services being re released. For example, HBO, which has HBO Max, announced, I believe this past week, they are going to open up two more streaming movie services. I, I don't, I mean, what? They want to, I mean, yeah, they want you to spend money, but come on. Uh, I mean... Uh, I don't know what to say about that. HBO going to have three separate streaming services? How is that going to work? If you want it, you got to pay for each one separately. That doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. But anyway, we got to see how it goes. But they got to figure out a way to make it work. Because spreading these movies out all over the place and having people having to pick one service over another to watch a movie... In the long run, that's just going to end up hurting them. It's going to end up hurting the movie studios, the TV networks, because uh, they are going to be depriving their shows, their movies, to a lot of viewers who are not willing to sign up to eight different streaming services to watch the movies they want to watch. So, anyway. Uh, and right, Philip Thompson writes, some people have no money. People are out of jobs because of COVID. So I think it would be great for Hollywood in general to get together and figure out a uniform digital licensing system where people who are A, out of work, can afford it. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there out of work. And it's really bad the, the, that people are in really bad circumstances right now. And I think now during these bad times is when TV shows and entertainment, like Jamie King said the other day on the interview that we had her here, how entertainment art is has always been important in the roughest of times. It's our way of distraction. It's our way away from the real world to forget about what's going on in the real world and get an hour, an hour and a half distraction from the real world. So anyway, we got to see what they come up with, but I think they'll figure it out that in the long run, they're going to end up hurting themselves and having HBO and Cinemax and all these other Netflix, Hulu, all competing against each other. You know what I mean? They're all competing against each other. And in the end, they're all going to be losers unless they come together. I'm not saying to form a, a monopoly. I just want to be clear about that. I don't want one huge monopoly where this thing is going to end up in antitrust on, on Capitol Hill. Them arguing, you know, being sued by the federal government on monopolizing everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a system just to make these movies and TV shows more easily accessible and affordable to the viewing public. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for now. Okay, here are 10 things you did not know about Rick and Negan's characters, their rivalry. This is from the comic books, okay? So, if you're not familiar with the uh, comic books and all you know of Rick and Negan is uh, from the TV show. This is going to give you some insight to how the characters differed in the comic books from the TV show, The Walking Dead. So, number 10. Negan has always held a great deal of respect for Rick. 
That is not really necessarily true on the TV show. It is more noticeable once Negan is no longer an antagonist, settling into his anti-hero role, but he's always held a great deal of respect for Rick, even when they were coming to blows. Rick represents a lot of what Negan wishes he could be, a true leader of the people, someone people want to follow, rather than someone that they merely fear. He also respected that Rick was willing to make the tough decision, even if it meant ruffling a few feathers. And we all know Rick, even on the TV show, has never been afraid of doing what he thought was right, even if that decision was horribly wrong, like attacking the Savior Outpost. But he's always made the decision that he felt was right. Sometimes arrogance did get the best of him. So, next, they're both natural-born leaders. While how they go about it is certainly different, they both have the DNA of a leader. It's a trait that isn't often found in people, especially not in the apocalyptic world like The Walking Dead. Negan, for all his psychopathic faults, had the charisma you need to shepherd others under his wing while Rick's leadership was more founded on his willingness to be the rock. To make the decisions no one else would want to make, both of them were willing to shoulder a burden a few could. Negan just lost his way. And referring, you know, to both the comics and the TV show, we really first see this in Rick when he stands up and he does what nobody else could do, and that is put down Sophia. You know, Walker Sophia. Number eight on the list, Rick was close from turning into Negan. It's glossed over at times with how the series ended, but Rick very well could have ended up as detached towards humanity as Negan was. He saw his best friend, wife, and countless others die right before his eyes, something due, a lot of it due to his some of his decisions completely backfiring. Number seven, Negan cared about Rick's well-being. Again, if you guys are not familiar with the comics, you're probably asking yourself, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, this is strictly the relationship that Negan had with Rick and vice versa in the comic books, as opposed to what we saw on the Walking Dead TV show. It's a strange thing to think about considering the two went to war with one another, but Negan has always had an inkling of care towards Rick's continued survival. You could see a bit of that, how he ended up uh, treating Carl, and it's shown in a greater degree after the time skip with Negan's time spent in prison. He expressed concern over Rick's leg and even volunteered himself to go collect weapons rather than have Rick go himself. Uh, number six, Negan saw Rick as a friend. The feeling isn't expressed verbally by either of them, and Rick would vehemently deny it, as he has always saw himself as better than Negan. But a kinship had grown between the two men. And, you know, after All Out War ended on the TV show, where really Rick would be the only one to come down and visit Negan to sort of fill him in on what they're doing up above. Uh, Negan was defiant. He's like, you're just building it for me. I'm the one, I'm still going to take it all over. So he was being defiant to when Rick left the show. Uh, while you couldn't see them knocking beers back in the bar, the confessions they made to each other about the worst thing they'd ever done is something you talk about to a is not something you talk about with a casual acquaintance. It shows a level of connection and trust, another sign 
was the level of glee Negan took in working with Rick. So, uh... I saw someone here say that they did not... Oh, sorry. I think it was Khaleesi who said she did not know anything about the comics. So I can imagine how this must seem completely foreign uh, to, you know, to you guys. Singer Chick writes, I don't know how that will work. Uh, let's see. What do you guys talk, talk about getting together, even with watching some of the old Walking Dead episodes? Khaleesi writes, nope. I know nothing about the comic books. Number five on the list is Negan provided a second father figure to Carl. Now, this is something we definitely saw in the TV show. Uh, Negan cared about Carl to some degree. Uh, Carl is far from calling Negan uncle or even ending his desire to murder the man, but it's clear Negan has rubbed off on Carl and even sees him as somewhat of a surrogate son to him. This relationship takes a hit after Carl shoots Lucille, his rusty, his trusty bat. However, it's repaired some in the years that Negan spends in prison. Now, in the TV show, it was uh, Rosita that ends up trying to take Negan out, but ends up shooting Lucille instead. Carl regularly visits him, discussing who his crush is to the other mundane parts of his life. Considering his dad was still alive, Carl had to feel something more than hatred towards Negan, or why bother talking to him in the first place? You know, yeah, I know we're all upset we lost Carl, but I would have loved to seen how they would have played it out on TV if Carl was still alive. What would Negan's relationship to Carl be right now? Let's say everything else happened the way it did. Rick disappeared at the end of episode five and season nine. But let's say Carl was still around, okay? What would his relationship be with Negan? And if Carl was still around, would Negan have a relationship with Judith? Just something we'll never know. Okay, number four. Both were forced to kill loved ones. Both of them were forced with the, with the prospect of killing a loved one who, they who turned into walkers. Negan's moment came far earlier than Rick's and led to him becoming the way he was. He couldn't bring himself to end his wife's life, instead leaving her to rot rather than doing what needed to be done. Rick, meanwhile, had the opposite reaction with Andrea, because remember, Rick and Andrea were a couple. There is no Rishone in the comic books. It was Rick and Andrea. Andrea lasted all the way through to the Whisperer War in the comic books. Knowing that he needed to end her life, even as he fought back to tears, it was one of the best moments in the series and showed the difference between the two men. So, number three on the list. They're both men of their word. Ooh, man, how many times, especially in the latter seasons, and in All Out War, did we say, did we hear Rick give his word? Especially when him and Morgan were being held by Jared and the other saviors, uh, just to turn around and kill all those saviors once they were let go. That was just not, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about that scene. Uh, Morgan understood they had to do what they had to do. But I think it bothered Rick. I think it bothered Rick and it, bo it bothered Morgan. Even though Rick felt he did what he needed to do, I really, really believe it bothered him. All right, number three, like I said, men, both of their word. One thing that Negan can be commended for is that he has always been a man of his word, something that even Rick grew to know about the man. If Negan said he was going to do something, he was going to do it, no matter how gruesome it was. The same held true with his act, acts of kindness. If he said he would bring no harm, as he did with Carl, that's precisely what he would do. It's what initially helped the two of them form a more neutral relationship with each other despite 
the mistrust. Number two, we're getting close to number one. Number two, they have a matching code of ethics. Negan is certainly more violent about this code, but they are both striving for the same thing, a place to call home. Negan always firmly believed that the strong were there to protect the weak and the powerless, not lord over them, a stark difference from many villains in the series. He was staunchly against rape because of this, even killing one of his own saviors because of it. That we did get to see on the TV show. Rick was much the same way, admonishing those who weren't following through with what was best for the group. Uh, Singer Chick writes, It bothered me that Rick gave his word and went back on it. It was like he knew he was going to do it before he did it. Oh, yeah. He was lying to them, and they believed him. And remember, those are the guys that escaped from the hilltop that were being held prisoner. Uh, when All Out War started, the big fight between Morgan and Jesus... Morgan wanted to kill him. Jesus wanted to save him. They ended up taking Jesus aside, brought them to the hilltop. They were there as prisoners. Simon's botched attempt to kill everybody at the hilltop. Some prisoners ran away. Uh, Rick went looking for them, caught up with Morgan. They were caught. They were tied up. Rick lied to them. I give you my word. Let us go. We all go back together. Well, walkers came into that bar. Uh, the saviors ended up believing Rick, cutting him loose, and after they used the saviors to take down the majority of the walkers, Rick turned around and, and Morgan, and they killed him. It was not his best moments. Uh, Lindsay Sparks writes, um, so where is the comment? I do like the friendships between Negan and Judith. Yep, so do I, but who knows if that friendship would exist if Carl was still alive. All right, number one on the list, they both have a strong sense of family. Throughout Rick's journey throughout the world, one thing remained a constant, keeping his family safe. For a time, that meant Laurie, his unborn child, and Carl, eventually whittling down to just Carl by the end. Everything he did was to keep them safe in some form or another, a goal that Negan can relate to. The loss of his wife broke him, and he constantly seemed in search of a child to help mentor, be it Carl or Lydia, during the Whisperer arc. So there you guys have it. And 90% of the stuff that I just read to you, we did not get to see play out on the screen of the TV show. So I wanted to read that to you guys because um, it really shows the difference on how they really changed it up from the comic books to the TV show. Did they do it because Andrew Lincoln was going to leave the show? Maybe, but they, the relationship between Rick and Negan, it was not anywhere close as it was in the comic books. So anyway, uh, let's see what else we have on our list here. I want to see how much time we have left. Uh, I want to just quickly show you guys. Let me bring it up here. I don't know how many of you guys subscribe to Shudder. Shudder is um, it's an AMC-owned streaming service, and it's great. It's all horror, and they came out with some of the top 10 Shudder movies, that you should watch if you do have Shudder. So let me go ahead and bring that up. And surprisingly enough, this first movie on the list, The Changeling, uh, I didn't find this article till today. I saw this movie for the first time last night. Okay, it's not a new movie, as you can tell by the artwork. It was made in 1980. Okay, that's when this movie came out, 1980. And it got really great reviews. I was looking for something to watch. And I'm like, okay, hell, let me watch it. It starred George C. Scott, who's, you know, was a legend, is a legend. You know, he was a legend in films. He also starred in The Exorcist 3. 
But this was one of the early day horror paranormal movies after the Amityville Horror and probably was made maybe because of the Amityville Horror and the success that that reached. But it's a definite recommend. It's called The Changeling. It released in 1980 and featuring an iconic performance from George C. Scott. The Changeling tells a story of a man trying to deal with the tragic deaths of his wife and daughter and is one of the best movies about a haunted house ever made. Scott's character, John, is a composer and is so overcome with grief that he moves to a large old house far away from the life he once uh, knew with his family. It turns out that the house is haunted by the ghost of a little boy who starts attempting to communicate with John, resulting in some chilling scenes. The Changeling is an absolute classic and masterpiece, making an effective horror movie that stands the test of time. And like I said, I just watched this movie for the first time last night. Uh, Singer Chick writes, it's a great movie. I thought it was great. I agree. So if you guys have Shudder, remember, these are all movies that are available on Shudder. Uh, I definitely recommend you guys watch The Changeling. Another one on the list, uh, The Taking of Deborah Logan. Okay. Found footage tends to divide horror fans, but you have to be a fan of the subgenre to appreciate the sheer terror of the taking of Deborah Logan. Jill Larson gives a phenomenal performance as Deborah Logan, an elderly woman suffering from Alzheimer's because they need money to keep their home from being repossessed. Deborah's daughter agrees to allow a group of film students to make a documentary about Deborah. As her behavior becomes increasingly bizarre and alarming, they begin to realize that something other than Alzheimer's is affecting Deborah. This is without a doubt one of the most frightening films ever made, and it is guaranteed to haunt you afterwards. I don't recommend watching this one alone. So if you're afraid of paranormal flicks, do not watch this alone. All right, next on the list, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Haven't seen this one. Uh, next, also, uh, Scream Queen, which uh, the writer of this article calls My Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm just going through this list because we're running out of time. Satanic Panic. That's an interesting title. Satanic Panic. All right. This is a horror comedy. Satanic Panic made my list of the top 10 horror movies of 2019, boasting an incredible cast, including Haley Griffin. The film follows a pizza delivery girl who is targeted by a satanic cult who want her to be their virgin sacrifice. Satanic Panic. (laughs) I'm sorry, that name just really amuses me. Satanic Panic. Features some insane practical effects and hilarious dialogue, and it is such a fun movie. All right, let's see what else we have on this list. Uh, In Search of Darkness. Nope, haven't watched that. The Transfiguration. I have seen that. That's pretty decent. Blew My Mind. Haven't seen that. Oh, Hell House. How many of you guys have seen the Hell House movies? Uh, If you haven't, it's one of those really unknown movies. And the first one, they've made like three of them now. You got to watch the first one. Hell House LLC. Okay? Uh, Let me read this to you. When a group of friends acquire the uh, abandoned Abaddon Hotel as the location for their annual haunted attraction, they have no idea that opening night will end in tragedy. Hell House LLC is the found footage style story of the events leading up to the opening night of the haunt and the disturbing discoveries made by a news crew when they decide to make a documentary about the incident. That's the second movie. 
Okay, that's the second movie. Uh, writer, director Stephen Cognetti does an outstanding job of creating an authentic haunted house experience within a film that is absolutely terrifying. If you don't already have a fear of clowns, you will after watching this movie. And I just got to vouch for this movie. I watched the, the first Hell House. It came out several years ago. It came out straight to streaming. Uh, watched it. Loved it. I've seen the sequel, which was good. I saw the third one, which just recently came out within the last several months. Not bad as well. But the first one, damn, it's scary as hell. So if you guys have Shudder, I highly recommend you guys find and watch Hell House LLC. Uh, CC Weezy writes, I'm about to watch all these movies. Um, Lindsay Sparks writes, Hell House movies are great. I'm surprised so many of you have watched it. Uh, it was it was really kind of not very known, but I'm glad to see that a lot of you guys have watched it. So anyway, I had a lot. Of, I have I, I really stacked the agenda with too much stuff tonight. We're going to run out of time. Uh, let's see what we let's do this. Okay. Nah. Well. Sorry, wrong screen. Anyway, as you can tell, when I load up my stuff with an agenda that's a little bit too uh, ambitious, it's a little bit too much. But anyway, with the time that we have left, I put together a very short list of my favorite serial killer movies. No, we're not going to talk about Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. You know, the big three, Michael, Jason, and Freddy. Those, we all know about them. We know the deal. These are movies that you might not have heard of as much. The first one is a Netflix movie. It's about, this is about serial killers. It's called The Summer of 84. It's a great movie. Obviously, it, it was released in 2018. Takes place, obviously, in 1984. Uh, it's an 80s horror reminiscent Stranger Things, but even more terrifying, a kid believes his police officer neighbor might be a serial killer. And so he and his friends team up to investigate, and then things get real scary real fast. I don't want to spoil it for you guys, so Summer of 84 makes my list. It's available on Shutter, of uh, uh, again, and I also want to say it's available on Netflix, but don't quote me on that. Next on the list is a 2008 movie called Untraceable. In this tech thriller, now check out this twisted story: an FBI agent races to identify a serial killer who live streams their murders for the world to watch. To add to the, you know, scary factor, the victims only die when the view count on the streaming video hits a, a certain number of viewers. So if he hits a certain number of viewers, uh, the people, the person that he is holding ready to kill, he murders them in a brutally, brutal, brutal, heinous way. Talk about taking technology and mixing it in with a serial killer. Uh, it was genius writing, and it's a really good movie. It's called Untraceable. It was released in 2008. Next on the list is a movie that I talked about yesterday. I'm going to mention it again. It's uh, Christian Bale's American Psycho. Came out in 2000. Endlessly quotable and still highly fascinating for its depiction of the high-rolling lifestyle of the 1980s Masters of the Universe, the film adaptation of Bret Easton Ellis's novel shows toxic masculinity at its most deadly, especially scary given how well besides the trophy business cards, 
this portrayal of yuppie guys who work in the Wall Street hold up decades later. You're going to watch this movie. What they're trying to tell you is you're going to watch it. It's been 20 years since it came out, and it'll seem like it was just released yesterday. It really is a movie that stands the test of time. So I'm going to recommend it again. Now, you guys definitely heard of this next one, the original Texas Chain Massacre. Uh, Toby Hooper's extraordinary, visceral, darkly hilarious slasher had one of the best post taglines ever written. Who will survive and what will be left of them? In its chainsaw-wielding giant Leatherface and his ghoulish, partially undead family take literal and psychological chunks out of a group of country teens lost in the sticks. Now, talking about the original, uh, the movie was remade and there were sequels and a whole bunch of other movies made after that. I'm talking about the original, 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the year that I was born, by the way. Made on a very tiny budget, it's powerful in its verite style of lulling rhythms, which suddenly jerks you from atmospheric road movie to quasi-occult chiller riddled with post-Watergate paranoia and mistrust. Man, that was a mouthful. It's also the source of loads of horror conventions that lesser films trout out by rote, like these faceless masked murderer and the power tool as a weapon. None ever did it as well as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Leatherface. I mean, uh, man, talk about a creepy-ass movie. If you've never seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 one, just please watch it. All right, last on the list is a movie that came out uh, two years ago. And if any of you saw this one, I'll be really impressed. It's called The Clove Hitch Killer. It stars Dylan McDermott. Uh, it's life in a small Christian-American town, church-going people, uh, you know. But there is a serial killer that has gone dormant for many years. That serial killer was called the Clove Hitch Killer. It was directed by Duncan Skiles. He replicates his bait and switch through cinematographer Luke McCaubrey's camera. The film is shot stock still, the camera more or less fixed from one scene to the next, as if affected by the vibe of the routine humming throughout its setting of somewhere in Kentucky. Almost none of the characters we meet in the movie have a spark. They are drones tasked with maintaining the hive's integrity against the interlopers who, God forbid, actually bother to be somebody. That's a little harsh. But anyway, caught up in this dynamic is Tyler, awkwardly quiet and shy, the son of Don, played by Dylan McDermott, a handyman, a scout troop leader, which brings no end of unexpressed consternation to Tyler as a scout himself. Anyway, this movie is, it's, it's great. It's a, I, would, I should have mentioned it yesterday when we were talking about our psychological horrors. It's called the Clovich, Clove Hitch Killer, and it is available on Hulu. So anyway, guys, check it out. We are out of time for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it is Saturday. We will not be live tomorrow night. We'll be back on the air again on Monday. Please visit our website, deadtalklive.com. For more information, see all of our guests and upcoming guests. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. It's always been a pleasure. I will see you guys back here on Monday. Until then, stay safe and stay walking. Good night, everyone.